You are listening to Audio Fanfic Podcast. The Unbearable Weight of Things Unsaid by Mulder Girl on AO3. Rating, Tina Up. He should say something to stop her. But he has no clue what the magic word is. I love you and don't do this. RA didn't work. So what else is left? The truth is, she's been leaving for a long time, bit by bit. And the four boxes she's just packed in her car are the nail in the coffin. He knows she's not coming back. Just as she knows, he won't stand in her way. She won't even give him the courtesy of a real goodbye, which really chafes. She hovers in the door to his office, twisting her key ring in her hand. He watches her fingers, waiting for her to pull the key to the house off the silver loop and lay it down somewhere as a silent farewell. But she doesn't. She shoves her hands in the pockets of her overcoat, hesitates for a few moments, and then turns to leave. Take care of yourself, she says over her shoulder, throwing it out like an afterthought, like he's a stranger off the street and they don't have a quarter of a century of history between them. He plucks his bottom lip as he leans back in his chair. The irony is that he's been taking better care of himself than he has been in years. He's not the best housekeeper in the world, but he showers and shaves every day. He limits his time on the internet, and he cooks almost every day with fruits and vegetables that he's managed to grow himself in a plot out back. He's turned into an amateur garden. She just hasn't been around much to witness any of it. That's not his fault. Same to you, he answers. He doesn't get up from his chair until he hears her car start and the crunch of gravel under the twisting tires. He watches her bump down the dirt road from the front window, where she can see him if she bothered to look back in her rearview mirror. When her car finally disappears, he goes back to the office and kicks his chair so hard it splinters a three-inch strip of wood off the front of his desk as it crashes into it. Fuck, he says. He doesn't call and he doesn't text, and it's the hardest thing he's ever done. Somehow it's worse than when he was alone in the desert all those years ago, missing all his son's milestones, afraid that the slightest bit of contact would put them all in danger. At least back then, there was a reason for it. Now, his grace fears an unread message or a refused call, and he just doesn't have the courage to try. He can't run as much as he used to. His knees just won't tolerate it. So he gets into lifting weights. He clears out the corner of his office and sets up a bench with a small rack of dumbbells. In short time, his arms become bulky and muscular, which suits his frame better. He's lost the leanness of his younger years, but he feels more fit than ever. He makes a habit of biking to the post office where his mail gets delivered about twice a week. A manila envelope arrives on a particularly sweltering day in late June, and he waits until he gets home to open it. He thumbs casually through the thin stack of papers with the ominous bold heading, Dissolution of Marriage, and rips the little red flags of tape off the signature lines. Despite the heat, he builds a fire in the wood-burning stove, crumbles each page one by one, and tosses them into the flames, letting them burn out and the ash smolder. He refuses to make this easy for her. It's the least he can do. 
In July, he brings one of the porch chairs down to the grass and watches the most spectacular meteor shower he's ever seen alone. And while it's normally one of his favorite times of the year, it's deeply unsatisfying. In August, he brings out the telescope one night to catch a glimpse of the International Space Station. In September, there's a lunar eclipse coinciding with the supermoon, the first of its kind in over 30 years. And all he can feel is overwhelming sadness that nothing much has changed for him in the span of a rare eclipse. He wonders if she sees any of it or if she even cares. Summer lingers too long and it's his birthday before he knows it. His heart skips a beat when his phone rings, but then his gut clenches when he sees the number on the caller ID. Mulder, he answers, an old habit he never lost. Fox, it's Margaret. Margaret, how are you? Is everything all right? Well, I... No, I don't think it is. I mean, I'm not sure. Is Dana there? Mulder bites his lip. He can't lie, but he hedges, unsure of what Scully has told her mother, if anything. She's not. Is there something I can help you with? We haven't spoken in a few weeks. Actually, it's been more than a month. She was rather snippy the last time I saw her and said she'd just been under a lot of stress. Maybe I'm just being foolish, but it almost feels like she's avoiding me. I'd just like to know that everything is all right. You'll have her call me? It's then that Mulder sighs and pinches the bridge of his nose as he squeezes his eyes shut. Scully moved out six months ago, he says. Moved out? I don't understand. Neither does he. Everything is certainly not all right then, Mrs. Scully says after a few awkward moments of silence. No, it's not. He doesn't make any promises to his mother-in-law, but he can't shake the unease he feels after their phone call. He waits until the following week to try to contact Scully, biking to the bus stop on a Thursday afternoon, so he could get there after her regular staff meeting, hoping her schedule was still the same. He locks his bike on the rack across the street and strolls through the front entrance, trying to appear nonchalant, like his stomach isn't about to drop and his heart isn't about to explode. Though he never went to the hospital with any frequency, he's been there enough to be familiar with the layout. He knows the staff conference room is down the hall to the left, and he makes his way towards the closed door. By his estimate, if she's in the meeting, she'll be out in the next 10 minutes and he can catch her then. He knows he's ambushing her, which she won't appreciate, but he doesn't know how else to go about seeing her at this point. As he waits, Mulder browses the pamphlets and announcements tacked to the bulletin board in the hallway. The reading material leaves little to be desired, and he instead turns his attention to the paintings hung high below the ceiling, mostly of saints and religious iconography. He's drawn to one in particular that depicts a young woman with flowing red hair with a crown of flames and green robes. There's a gold chain around her neck with a charm that dangles askew, almost resembling a large X on her chest. The door to the conference room opens, startling Mulder and sending him sidestepping towards the wall. He nods to the procession of priests and doctors that file out, scanning the line for Scully. She's got her head down when she comes out, focused on her phone. Scully, he says quietly, tugging softly at her elbow to pull her out of line. Scully startles, tugs her elbow back so sharply that she stumbles back a step, but then quickly recovers with a nervous glance at her colleagues that pass by without paying any attention to either of them. Mulder, she whispers forcefully. What are you doing here? 
Your mother called. They separate to allow a group of three doctors and animated discussion to pass by. He watches her as the crowd continues to trickle out. Her eyes dart to and fro, landing everywhere but on him. She looks different to him, and it's not because her hair is shorter, and it looks like she's taken to darkening it to a deeper shade of red again. She's angular now, sharp edges to her jaw and cheekbones. The grim press of her lips into a dark slash across her face doesn't help. A nun is the last to leave the room and locks the door behind her. She passes between them with a nod and a smile to Mulder. He smiles in return and then watches her retreat, waiting until the hall is clear to chance another look at Scully. She has her head down, arms crossed tightly over her chest. It's so quiet, he swears he can hear the ticking of his wristwatch. He racks his brain for an opening, something non-threatening that will get her talking. Who is that? he asks, pointing up at the painting he'd been studying. Scully lifts her eyes and follows the angle of his fingertip to the painting. St. Bridge of Kildare, she answers. Patronage? Abused children and babies born out of wedlock. Also fugitives and milkmaids, I believe. Isn't she the one that turned water into beer? That has been attributed to her, yes. And healing the mute. He raises his brows, healing the mute. The irony is not lost on him. A woman of many talents, clearly, he says, like someone else I used to know. Scully looks down again and scuffs the floor with the pointed toe of her right high heel. What did my mother want? She was worried about you. Asked me to have you call her. Did you tell her? About us? I told her you moved out. Scully sighs and swipes a hand across her forehead, rubbing the top of her brow like she's staving off a headache. What would you have had me say, he asks, that you were at the store? You'll call when you get home? No, she shakes her head with closed eyes. No, I just hadn't really thought about how to tell her. Guess I saved you the trouble. Scully's brow arches up slightly, and she turns her head away. I have rounds to make. When does your shift end today? Why? I thought maybe we could talk. I don't think that's possible. I have to go. Thank you for coming. I'll be sure to call my mother and ask her not to call you next time. Next time you ghost her? Mulder lifts his hand to Scully's face and lightly brushes her chin with the side of his finger, urging her to look at him. I wasn't. She stops and jerks her head back. He steps back and shoves his hands in his pockets. Fifteen minutes, he says. That's all I ask. Scully licks her lips and then swallows. She twists her wrist free from the sleeve of her lab coat and checks her watch. I'm off in an hour. I'll wait at the diner across the street. She nods without looking at him and walks away. He turns his eyes back up to the painting of St. Bridge. I'm not a milkmaid, he says, or very religious, but I was a fugitive once. Does that qualify me for some assistance here? St. Bridge looks down at him benevolently. He waits a few moments for some divine inspiration to strike, but feels nothing. He shrugs apologetically for having wasted both their time and leaves. At the diner, Mulder seats himself by the window with a view facing the front of the hospital. If she sneaks out the back, he won't be able to see her. But if she stands him up, that'll be on her conscience, not his. 
He orders a nice tea and a slice of sweet potato pie that he doesn't really have the stomach for, but needs something to keep him occupied. The hour passes by slowly. Mulder is fidgety and impatient. The placemats have printed games for children, and he finds a broken purple crayon wedged at the back of his seat. So he works on the word search and a game of spot the difference and a circular maze before he just starts doodling. He used to doodle a lot in budgetary meetings and then tried to have Scully guess what he'd drawn when they were done. Every time the bell above the door rings, Mulder looks up, deflating a little more each time when it's not her. Finally, it is her. He turns his placement over and returns the crown to where he found it. She slips into the bench across from him without looking at him, keeping her overcoat on and her briefcase tucked to her side, obviously planning a quick escape. The waitress has been pouring him refills of iced tea swoops in as soon as Dana is seated with a glass of water and a straw. Don't normally see you on Thursdays, Dana, she says. We've only got Italian wedding or chicken noodle today, if you're here for the usual. That's all right, Rose. I'm not here for long. The water's fine. You change your mind, you let me know. I will. Thank you. Mulder blinks in surprise. He wonders what Scully's usual is, but he's assuming it's some kind of soup. She's regular enough that they know her name here, and she knows theirs. He doesn't know if it's a recent development. She's never mentioned coming to this diner before. Only the coffee shop on the opposite corner. Scully rips the paper from the top of her straw with her thumbnail and takes a sip of water. She checks her watch and then drops her hands to her lap. Timing me, Mulder asks. No, she answers. He doesn't really believe her. Did you catch the meteor shower this summer? She frowns. Is that what you brought me here to talk about? Just wondering. I was on call. Did you? He nods. You missed a good one. She doesn't respond, but brings one hand up to play with the discarded straw wrapper on the table, looping it over her thumb with her index finger and twisting it back and forth. What happened, he asks. What do you mean? Why did you leave? Her shoulders move up into a shrug, and she shakes her head a little. You don't know, he asks. You just woke up that morning and decided you were done? I don't think we should do this here, Mulder. Then, where? I just... It wasn't like that. You know things were difficult. We've been through more difficult times. What happened, Scully? Because suddenly, it felt like I saw you less and less, and even when you were home, it's like you were somewhere else. Dishes clatter on the counter and Scully jumps. She shivers and then pulls her coat tighter over her chest as she twists her shoulders like she's trying to make herself as small as possible. Mulder leans forward and drops his head low so he can look up slightly at her. Did you meet someone else, he asks. Of course not. I think it's a fair question. The answer is no. Did I do something? You didn't do anything. Something about the way she phrases her answer gives Mulder pause. There's accusation in her tone, and she pulls her brows together like there is something there, something she can pinpoint. So it's something I didn't do, he says, sitting back again. You know, you could put us both out of our misery here and just tell me what that was. It won't change things. She rubs her brow and then pulls her briefcase up like she's preparing to leave. He reaches across the table and puts his hand on her arm, squeezing softly. There has to be a way to fix this, Scully. We've been through too much to end like this. 
I don't think you want it to go this way either. Otherwise, you wouldn't be here. I'm here because I thought you might be bringing the papers I sent you. No, I burned those. You want them? You can come dig them out of the fireplace. You. I'm not signing anything until you tell me how this happened. 2012. 2012, nothing happened. Exactly. You're mad at me because the world didn't end? That's not it. Her head shakes like she's fighting uncontrollable tremors as she pulls her briefcase up again. This time Mulder squeezes her arm a little more forcefully. I was wrong. I'm glad I was wrong. I won't apologize for that. I don't know what that's got to do with anything. We could have had a different life. Sure, there's a thousand different ways that could be true. I could have stayed in England after finishing up at Oxford. You could have stayed in medicine and not joined the FBI. We could have acknowledged our feelings for each other a lot sooner and not wasted so much time. Maybe in another life we never met. Maybe in another life we met under different circumstances. Settled down in a house with a white picket fence, a dog, and two. Mulder stops and lets go of Scully's arm. He sits back with a deep sigh and his body slumps in the seat. Scully has her eyes closed and her chest rises and falls with short, quick breaths. You don't know that things could have been different, he says. You don't know that giving him up is what saved him or all of us. And you don't know that we could have kept him safe. Maybe we couldn't give him the life he deserved. Maybe we should have tried, especially since it didn't fucking matter in the first place. Mulder recoils a little. It's rare that Scully uses foul language. So, if I'm hearing you correctly, you resent me for being wrong and think that somehow we could have kept William with us all these years, on the run, in hiding, and no one would have come for him again? No one would have looked? His proximity to us would have gone completely ignored because, in hindsight, I was wrong. His abduction, the attempts on his life before he was even one year old, totally irrelevant. Does that sum it up? Scully wipes a tear from her cheek with the side of her hand, but she doesn't answer. There's a sour taste in Mulder's mouth. All the sadness and confusion he's been holding has turned to bitterness. He stares at her, nostrils flaring like a raging bull. He's seething, seeing red. She's had nearly three years to work this out with him. Instead, she chose to walk away. He was tired of suffering the consequences of the things she'd chosen to withhold. Well, at the end of the day, Scully, you're the one that gave him up. Maybe if we did have a different life, you would have been a little stronger and held out a little longer. I never resented you for what you had to do, but I can tell you that I never would have done the same, no matter what. Maybe then he'd still be ours, but I guess we'll never know. Scully gasps a little, and her breath catches on a squeak. Her eyes spill over with fat tears that Mulder ignores. He will regret it later, but in this moment, he doesn't care that he just said one of the most vitriolic things he could ever say to her. If she can punish him for the things he never did, he can punish her for the things she did do. He slides out of his seat and pulls his wallet out of his back pocket. He tosses a $20 bill on the table, more than enough to cover his iced tea and pie. Take care of yourself, he says to her before he strides out the door. The obnoxious bell punctuates his exit. Hey. 
If you like this story and would like to contribute, you can do so by going to our Patreon page at www.patreon.com forward slash audio fanfic pod. As a patron, you are granted early access to one new story of your choosing per month. Thank you for listening. And remember, the stories are out there.